Tēnā koutou no mai, haere mai, welcome to Q&A, I'm Jack Tame. Today, Foreign Minister Nanaia Mahuta on New Zealand's response to Ukraine and the future of Three Waters. I think as councils look at those recommendations, they'll see the merit of uh, the way in which those uh, ideas have been put forward. Then, first it was a ban on single-use plastic bags. Now the government is proposing big changes to waste and recycling. So, get ready to separate your food scraps and a 20-cent refund for every plastic bottle. Plus, a wide-ranging and surprising interview with former Minister Tracy Martin. Education, oranga tamariki, and what really happened to Labour and New Zealand first. It was fairly tense towards the end of that coalition. But we begin with the war in Europe. And as Russia's bombardment of Ukraine continues, the government has introduced a sanctions bill that allows it to target Russian people, companies and assets. Foreign Minister Nanai Mahuta is with us this morning from Taupo. Tēnā Minister, thank you for being with us. Morena, Jack. Kia ora. There's not a whole lot of detail uh, as to these sanctions at the moment, so can you just start off by giving us a bit of a timeline for how things are likely to work? When will these sanctions actually be introduced? Well, we're working uh, since the passing of legislation last week at speed to ensure that we have the first tranche of uh, sanctions to be considered uh, by Cabinet in this coming week and the weeks following. We've got to remember that the uh, bill that we passed is a targeted bit of legislation in relation to Russia, and it enables uh, by regulation us to undertake and impose sanctions around persons, services, entities and assets. Uh, so uh, we'll set, uh, the regulation will set the sanction. It'll be approved mm. by a group of uh, ministers with power, powers to act and myself. Are there people and assets in New Zealand right now that will be sanctioned? Yeah, part of the uh, legislative framework allows us to share information with other jurisdictions. So, for example, uh, the idea of uh, identifying persons that have a link, a critical link, to the uh, Russian military and uh, Putin's regime undertaking uh, the war. Mm. Uh, that information will be shared, but more importantly, it will also allow intelligence gathering here in New Zealand uh, around individuals uh, that may or may not be covered by the sanctions. So, so just to be clear, from the information you have available at the moment, are there people and assets in New Zealand right now that will be subject to the sanctions? Well, the first tranche of uh, identified persons will be those on our, our travel ban, so we'll work out from there. And the point is, is that sanctions don't stop on day one. Mm. They are evolving tool and mechanism this... to be able to continue get the, to gather information and put people on the list. For example, in Australia, they're regularly updating mm. people on their list as they gather more and more information about individuals. So there's no one on that travel ban at the moment, to the best of my knowledge, who is currently in New Zealand. So, so just to go back to that question, is there anyone in New Zealand at the moment or any asset in New Zealand at the moment that you are confident will be subject to these sanctions? I'm confident that we'll now have the mechanism to be able to look at individuals that are in New Zealand and then assess in, in, by way mm. of the legislative threshold whether or not sanctions should apply. And it's got to be that way, otherwise what will end up happening is that people will say in a very arbitrary way, this person or that person shouldn't be on. We need the intelligence to be able to justify people being on the sanctions list and they have to be connected to uh, the Putin regime uh, and the military action that's un currently being undertaken. 
the intention in the first instance is like every other country that we t that we start looking at Russian oligarchs mm. because we know there is often a very strong connection with the Putin regime. Well, let's talk about that. Alexander Abramov is the only Russian oligarch publicly known to have investments in New Zealand. He owns a $50 million lodge in Helena Bay and we have some fresh pictures uh, from overnight showing a Greenpeace flotilla making their way to that lodge to protest Alexander Abramov. He owns a super yacht as well. Will you sanction Alexander Abramov? Certainly there'll be uh, ways in which to assess uh, individuals uh, and whether they meet the threshold to be able to go onto the sanctions list. It's difficult for me to talk about individuals uh, prior to undertaking those threshold tests and we will do that. We have the capacity to do that now that the law is in place. Well, you just, you just said to me before that, that you believe most oligarchs have direct links to Vladimir Putin. Alexander Abramov is widely considered an oligarch, and I appreciate that that term may have different definitions in the eyes of, of different people. Do you consider him to be an oligarch? As I say, the legislation provides us with a threshold test and to gather information to make that assessment. Okay. And part of that assessment will be to share information with other countries to see whether or not uh, such individuals on the are on each other's list because they do travel around the world. So I'll, I'll, I'll use the, the mm. legislative pathway to be able to make the assessment. The difficulty with making an arbitrary uh, statement about whether or not people should be on is that we might inadvertently target any Russian person just because they're Russian and that's not the intention of this legislation. No, of course. I mean, he, he owns a $50 million lodge in Helena Bay in Northland, so I'm sure he's not someone who's come across the government's attention for the very first time. Um, well, we've he's got the law now to be able to make the assessment about whether or not he should be on the list. He's a steel magnet, isn't he, Mr Abramov? Can the government guarantee that his steel is not being used to aid the Russian war effort? Look, that's, that's not the point of the sanctions. What the sanctions bill allows us to do is gather information to see what the connection is between his wealth mm. and the Russian military and the Putin regime. And that's the pathway we will follow in order to ensure that people go onto the list with that strong connection and with the intention to be able to freeze the assets here in New Zealand so they cannot be used to fund an unjust war. So will you be working with your Five Eyes partners on this? As I say, the legislative framework allows us to share information uh, with other jurisdictions and gather intelligence of our own to be able to make a determination about which mm. persons, services, entities and assets will be covered by the sanctions regime. What is likely, from the framework that you have available at the moment, to happen to Russian fishing boats and Russian fishermen in New Zealand? Yeah, the, um, th that's an interesting question to the extent that there's no um, visible connection r regarding fishermen mm. uh, and, and the Russian regime. But again, it's really uh, a matter of ensuring that the threshold test uh, in the legislation that we've uh, passed is the test that is met, not just because any Russian person uh, should be on, on a list because we think they should be. So mm. that, that is the test. It will apply uh, to oligarchs. And, and in that instance, they are likely um, after the test to be there. But but in other instances, for Russian people, 
uh, who are carrying out work lawfully, who aren't connected to the military regime, they, they, they will not be covered. And, and that's the intention. One of the big worries uh, that I had, because a sanctions regime is so new to New Zealand, is that people wouldn't uh, perhaps understand uh, the need for a threshold test in order to cover targeted people, and in this instance, targeted to the military regime and an unjust war. For a country which leans into multilateral institutions, the likes of the United Nations, uh, some critics will say uh, autonomous sanctions sets a bad precedent for New Zealand. You're working on another piece of legislation that will allow framework for autonomous um, sanctions to be introduced in the future. Will you commit to having a threshold set by a multilateral institution for the introduction of sanctions in the future? Well, in fact, that's uh, part of what was in the uh, preamble and the policy statement for this uh, particular targeted sanctions uh, uh, bill. We do lean into multilateralism. We do support UN institutions. The, the approach to a broader autonomous sanctions regime will have a threshold uh, in mind uh, uh, in that way so that we can be confident uh, that yeah. we're not arbitrarily imposing autonomous sanctions. So that, what, what will that uh, threshold, threshold be? Of, uh, the United Nations, um, United Nations Security Council threshold, or a UNGA General Assembly threshold. Those are all things that need to be considered in our broader approach. Would an UNGA the General Assembly threshold be appropriate? Because the uh, Security well, Council is really a disaster. Pass, yeah. UNGA don't have it within their jurisdiction, to my understanding, to pass. Uh, sanctions. It's actually the Security Council threshold. Yeah. And again, part of the approach New Zealand would take going forward is to look at our broader suite of um, human rights, uh, uh, our human rights framework, but also mm. within that context, consider a sanctions regime because it is a step of last resort. Given we don't trade much with Russia, our sanctions might not have that much of an effect and our humanitarian response to the situation in Ukraine is different. I appreciate that this has some crossover with the Minister uh, for Immigration, Chris Farfoy, but as Minister for Foreign Affairs facing this unique situation, do you support a special visa allowance for family members of Ukrainian New Zealanders to come here? Well, the humanitarian crisis is forecast to be hugely impactful around the world. I think the UNHCR had figured around about 5 million mm. uh, in the immediate instance. And we think, and when we consider the Ukrainian population as a population of 44 uh, million people, it's just so vast. I think uh, going directly to your question, uh, it's entirely um, a matter for Minister Farfoy, but if we look at the Ukrainian community that we have here in New Zealand and bringing forward uh, visas that are currently in the pipeline. It's an area that the Minister uh, certainly is, is uh, keen to address. Broader than that, we've got to think about successful resettlement. This was the challenge with Afghanistan mm. uh, and making sure that we might set a target of refugees coming to New Zealand, but we are equally as concerned that they will able, be able to have the uh, support networks here, uh, able to have housing, being able to transition to successive employment yeah. and things like that. So there's a whole lot of downflow impacts of our refugee commitment that I'm sure Minister Farfoy is weighing up. Are you aware of any New Zealanders who have gone to Ukraine to fight? No, I'm not. And in fact, our travel advisory uh, cautions against that. 
if uh, New Zealanders went to Ukraine to fight, should they face criminal charges upon their return? Look, that's something I'll take advice on. As I say, our travel advisory uh, cautions against that. Let's talk about Tauranga. As the Minister for Local Government, you have ruled that Tauranga won't have local elections for almost two and a half years. How is that democratic? Well, actually, we've got to remember why the decision to appoint uh, commissioners took place. Uh, the reports were that the council was dysfunctional, uh, that the, the uh, leadership around the council table could not reach a consensus, and that they were challenged with actually trying to address some of the most significant issues in a, in a city like Tauranga, which had huge growth uh, um, problems or But or another two and a half years... Oh, look, the, the, the Commission has undertaken what no council previous has done to the extent that they have confirmed the LTP, looked at integrated management opportunities, addressed the issue of housing and transport network planning in a way that actually they've engaged with the whole community, community, business, iwi and But industry. they're not elected minister. They're not elected officials. No, they're not elected, but they weren't put in very lightly. They were put in because previous elected representatives actually couldn't reach a decision. And the whole community was frustrated because Tauranga is a growing city. The other thing to mention is that the, the commissioners are focused on outcomes for Tauranga, not their own political egos. You've uh, had another report regarding Three Waters this week, and I appreciate that the report had relatively narrow terms of reference. Do you intend to accept the group's recommendations? Yeah, I want to thank the working group for the breath of fresh air that they have breathed into this. And I am uh, considering a, a, the range of helpful mm. recommendations that they put forward to strengthen governance, representation and local voice. I hope that the sector will see that they have uh, really heard uh, the most critical concerns about which parts of the reform program that I have proposed need to be strengthened from a local government perspective to give communities greater assurance. But what mm. I'm heartened by is that there's unanimous agreement around two things, the need for reform and that we need to find ways to have a public model of uh, water services delivery and safeguard against privatisation. And I think they've really come out with some really good, useful recommendations. Like I say, the group had relatively narrow terms of reference, but it's very interesting to note the dissenting voice, your former colleague, Phil Goff. And fundamentally, there is an opposition from many to the co-governance model that is enshrined within your three waters uh, legislation. Phil Goff says he supports partnership as opposed to co-governance. How is it democratic to have unelected Māori making up half of those seats, half of those representatives on the Three Waters boards? Well, the thing about uh, the approach is that we're bringing forward arrangements that already exist in many councils because of treaty settlement arrangements. So thinking about water and the whole system, having mana whenua and iwi sitting at the table in relation to water service delivery means we're not only looking at protecting the source mm. from where our drinking water comes from, but also ensuring that we can clean up water and improve the way in which it goes back into receiving environments. It's a whole of system approach. Having mana whenua perspectives at the board table will actually drive long-term intergenerational outcomes and be better for the whole community. Clearly there is large-scale opposition to your Three Waters plans as they stand. Are you committed to remaining in the local government portfolio until the next election? Look, that's a matter for the Prime Minister, but I want to acknowledge... What's your position? That there were two... 
Well, look, that's a, that's a matter for the for the Prime Minister. I'm committed to ensuring that local government is fit for is it, is it your expectation you'll be in that position until the next election? Pardon? Is it your Sorry? expectation you'll be in that portfolio until the next election? Look, it's it's a matter for the Prime Minister, but there are two two areas of the Three Waters Reform Programme which I underestimated, and I acknowledge that's my responsibility. The first one is that I underestimated that the public really knew what was happening with pipes under the ground, and they had a lot more knowledge about the trade-offs that councils were always making in relation to what gets spent above the ground, what gets spent under the ground. Now, it wasn't until pipes burst or we had dirty water going into our rivers and things like that that people felt there was a problem. So it was kind of out of mind, out of sight. That's the first uh, underestimation and my on my part that I got wrong. The second one was the communications uh, um, advertising campaign. There was a high level of sensitivity from local government around that campaign because they felt that they were getting blamed for something. And I acknowledge that decades of un underinvestment in water infrastructure is within the council mm. purview, but perhaps the, the advertising campaign wasn't the best way to tell the message. So again, those are two areas that I underestimated that I got wrong, and I accept responsibility for that going with that, forward. With the that need in mind, it's absolutely clear. Okay, if we need reform, with that in mind, are you the best person to continue pushing three waters forward? Oh, look, I would I would hate to think that the reform is being held up because of personality issues. Every step of the way, mm. I've tried to ensure uh, that uh, I've engaged with the sector. I think but, if they're but are, the are you the best person if, if you've made those underestimations? Look, I, I acknowledge I, I'm one of those people that you're not, will not answering it, Minister. If are I, you the best I've person? Got to be wrong, I, I think I am. I think I am because I, okay. I've seen this issue for the duration of my period of time in Parliament and it's been kicked down the street for too long and now we're doing something about it. And right. I'm really pleased we are because to not do something about it means that people will pay more rates for less quality of services for mm. fundamental things like safe drinking water and we can't have that. Tēnā Thank you very much for your time. It's Nanaia Mahutu. Up next on Q&A, the government's new plan to both charge you money and give you money for these. And then an interview you got to see, a frank admission from former New Zealand First Minister Tracy Martin. Was there a sense of relief perhaps yeah. that you weren't re-elected? Yeah. Yeah, there was. For me, there was. Welcome back to Q&A. Remember these? They feel like a relic from a past age, eh? Shows how quickly habits change. And after the government banned single-use plastic bags during its last term, environmental advocates have been urging the government to take more action on plastic. Here's Fena Owen. We know we throw away too much rubbish and stuff that could be recycled. We've known that for decades. We're so far behind the rest of the planet when it comes to um, product stewardship, regulation around products and packaging. And as chair of Zero Waste Network, Marty Hoffett isn't sitting behind a desk. We have a real problem, he reckons, biffing our drink containers. In this country, we drink 2.23 billion beverage containers a year, so that's plastic, aluminium, glass, Tetra Pak and we recover about 40%. So we discard about a billion of them uh, to landfills or to the environment every year. 
I would say that plastic is public enemy number one. The old plastic bottle, seconds to make, minutes to drink, and up to 450 years to decompose in a landfill. Plastic skin, don't let the plastic win. The answer to reduce the amount of beverage containers ending up in the environment, ending up in landfills, is to give them a value. They don't have a value. Nobody's going to pick it up. Give them a value, 10 cents, 20 cents. A, people will stop throwing them out the car window, and B, people will pick them up in the environment if they see them. Various buyback schemes are running in most Australian states now and European countries like Germany where 98% of drink containers are recycled. We're really hoping that New Zealand is, is, is going to join the rest of the planet that, are, that have these schemes and that are recovering, have much higher recovery rates for beverage containers than we currently have. Well, this morning we have some potentially good news for Marty from Fenner's story. The government is proposing a new recycling and waste management scheme that would give New Zealanders 20 cents every time they recycle a plastic bottle. It would also standardise curbside collections around the country so councils recycle the same stuff and so that households and businesses separate food scraps and stop putting organic waste into landfills. Environment Minister David Parker is with us live this morning. Tēnā koe, Minister, thank you for being with us. You've got three big proposals, so let's run through the detail. And we'll start with the plastic bottles. How would the 20-cent refund scheme work? So when people uh, buy a beverage, they would uh, pay 20 cents extra. They'd get the 20 cents back when they take the container back. Uh, the, uh, the key to it working well is convenient uh, return places and so we're consulting on where they should be and looking at supermarkets for example. Some overseas countries have a minimum floor area so a little supermarket doesn't have to do it but larger ones do. So it's got to be convenient uh, but as you've already said uh, you know we've got a terrible record on this including you know glass on beaches and things like that from beverage containers that aren't recycled. Mm. and we can do so much better. Now, I, I will just point out some of the detail. This plan doesn't apply to milk bottles. It's for plastic bottles like this, single-use plastic bottles. Milk bottles are exempt because they are all already being recycled in, in relatively good numbers. Um, just talk me through the 20-cent cost that goes onto the bottles versus the refund because obviously the cost of living is substantial at the moment. Uh, the cost of things at the supermarket has been going through the roof and another expense on consumers might not be met with too much excitement. Well I, I, the first thing about this is it actually takes a long time to develop so it doesn't apply till 2025 so that's a future issue rather than a current one. Um, but the effective cost in uh, Queensland where the Productivity Commission looked at their scheme which has now been in place for a while, they found that the effective cost to consumers was 93 cents per household per month. So people get their deposits back. Do we have the capacity to actually recycle all of these bottles? We use about two billion a year. Uh, one of the problems is that the quality of the recycling stream is poor in parts of New Zealand because too much rubbish goes in the recycling bin and indeed too much of the recyclable stuff goes in the, in, in the rubbish. And we, our, our rates of recycling in New Zealand are about half of what they are in countries that do it better. So we can do a lot better and if you do better you have less contaminated 
product streams and so you can recycle them more effectively. So we think we can, there's a good news story there too. So, so you think we actually have to increase our recycling capacity before we'll be able to take two billion containers a year? Uh, well, it happens at the same time. You develop the, the uh, recovery networks. Uh, these days, some of them are a bit like a hole in the wall. Instead of putting your, your plastic in to get a cash transaction out, you feed the bottle in and you get a cash refund out. So that, that infrastructure will be developed. Another one of your proposals is to standardise curbside collection around the country. How will that work? Yeah, well, this is something that councils are asking for too. Uh, at the moment, different rules apply in different parts of the country. It's very hard for the councils to run good educational campaigns to help people understand what should be recycled and what shouldn't. And as a consequence, there's a lot of rubbish contaminating the recycling and there's a lot of recycling going in the rubbish. So standardising that nationwide will mean that it's clearer for people and easier for them to do the right thing. You We're also separating food waste at the same time. Yeah, tell us about that. Well, at the moment, the Climate Commission says that we have to uh, reduce our uh, biogenic methane emissions. And to do that, you've got to take food waste, both commercial food waste and domestic food waste, out of the waste streams. And instead of putting it in the landfill, where there is some methane recovery, but not as high rates as you get if you do it uh, if you do it better through separating the waste streams. So over time, and again, this takes a long time to roll out, but over time, people will be able to separate their food waste at the curbside and that'll be recycled separately. So that'll be composted, it'll turned into biogas, those sorts of things. The, the proposals, as I see them, don't do anything to disincentivise the production of plastic in the first place. They're very much focused on consumer responsibility rather than at the production end. Why is that? Uh, well, you, you do need to do both. You do need to design waste out of the waste stream and push against excessive packaging. And we do work with the likes of the Grocery Council and the major supermarkets to do that. And the supermarkets, uh, you know, they're, they're trying. Uh, and I think over time they'll do better. We're also trying to standardise the sorts of packaging so that it can be recycled rather than there be too many different types of plastic that can't. And for example, we're banning some types of plastic so that they don't contaminate the recycling stream and ruin mm. other recyclables. The third of your proposals uh, regards business. You want to mandate businesses to separate food scraps from the rest of their rubbish. What will be the compliance burden if that comes into law? Uh, well, they'll, they'll have to have a separate bin for, their, for that. Um, in some ways, if, uh, if we're more efficiently dealing with food waste, doing commercial and residential at roughly the same time, you improve, you improve the efficiencies of the composting and recycling and so the overall costs are lower than they would otherwise be. Um, but these businesses are already paying for the disposal of their waste. Uh, we'll be helping them separate what can be disposed of better and it may actually, for some of them, decrease their, their waste costs. There'll of course be uh, jobs in the, in the waste industry. Uh, there will be better separation, for example, of beverage containers from food waste because uh, those businesses will get their deposits back on their containers uh, as well as uh, dealing properly with their food waste. Minister, I know you're about some, to... Some of this is large businesses too. I know yeah, you're the about people to... people that are producing uh, food at scale. <laughs> no, you go. No, I go. No, you go. No, I go. No, you hang up. No, I hang up. Um, I know you're about to go and, go and um, uh, give a bit more detail on these proposals, and so we'll let you get away. But, but just before we do, 
How are you feeling? Have you fully recovered from COVID-19? Oh, look, yeah, I was, I was uh, double vax plus boosted and I had a mild dose of COVID, I suspect, Omicron. So it was very mild for me and, yeah, I was, I was uh, well out of it in a matter of days, actually, and self-isolated for 10 days and then was free. Oh, we're pleased to hear it. Thank you very much for your time. That is Environment Minister Thanks, David Jack. Parker. Thank you. If you want to contact the Q&A team, please call Ed or my. These are our main platforms. You can find us on email, Twitter or Facebook. After the break, I visit the Wider Upper for an extended sit-down with Tracy Martin, the former minister on Cabinet, cancel culture and the future of New Zealand first. Basically, everything we recommended that we believe will provide the future that public media needs has been acknowledged and accepted by the Cabinet. Um, so we're, we're just thrilled with um, the outcome today, really. That was Tracy Martin speaking earlier this week. She headed up the group giving recommendations to the government on a new public media entity. As a New Zealand First Minister in the last government, Tracy Martin held the Seniors, Children, Internal Affairs and Associate Education portfolios. Recently, I visited her and her dogs at home in Wairarapa for a wide-ranging conversation. 18 months-ish since mm. you were in the Beehive. How have you found the transition to life outside Parliament? Um, originally, it was a bit tricky. It was trying to just... Everybody, I suppose, or lots of people, um, you get your sort of your identity a little bit off your job. And, you know, so for a period of time, I'd been a stay-at-home mum, and then, strangely enough, I was a politician, and then, what am I now? So it took a, took a little while to figure out what am I now. Um, but I'm pretty comfortable with who and what I am now. What so, are you now? Um, now, I guess I'm an independent contractor. Um, I am a person who, I'm a, you know, I'm a, an empty nester, so it's just me and my husband again now. Um, and I'm, I guess I'm a, a wife who supports her husband and doing what he's doing as well, which I've mm. been able to do that for a lot of years. Mm. It's interesting. You were there for the first six months or so of the pandemic. Mm. And my sense is that the period since you left Parliament has been the period where perhaps the pandemic management has become more difficult. Yeah. So I wonder, what, what is your take as to how this government, this term, mm. has handled COVID-19? Um, oh, I just, I honestly, I sit down there and I watch it like every other New Zealander is watching it. I don't know what else they could have done. I mean, the window that the decisions the government made that we have been given to get ready for what is, which was always going to be the inevitable, the moment that part of this virus or a variant of the virus came and we were, we were going to have to live with it. Mm. So um, I honestly think they've done the best job anybody could have done in the circumstances. I know that they keep looking overseas, they keep watching to see what other people's reaction was and what the consequences were. So I don't, I, you know, I wouldn't want to second guess them. Have you talked to the Prime Minister about it? Yep, yep. So I, I have communication every now and then with the Prime Minister um, and with the Deputy Prime Minister. and the Minister of COVID, whatever, whatever he is. <laughs> He's the Minister of a few things. And what do you say? Often it's me sending them a message just saying, listen, I'm really thinking about you um, because I know how hard these decisions are. Um, 
you know, and, and it because they were always hard decisions. When you when we made the decision to close down a country, it was a choice between we know what it's going to do to the economy, we know what it's going to do to people's businesses, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, but we also know what this virus will do to humans. Mm. So the decision was made then. We can support people's incomes, we can support businesses and so on and so forth, but we can't bring back the dead. That was literally where that conversation was. They've continued to have that conversation, trying to minimise the harm but protect New Zealanders. So mostly it's me saying, just kia kaha, guys, just keep going, thinking of you always. And they're very kind. They generally come back to me relatively quickly as well, which is really kind of them. Yeah. It's caused disruption everywhere in many different sectors, but massive disruption in education. How do you think COVID has affected the education for New Zealand kids? Um, it, I'm, I answer in two ways. First of all, I've been filming my mum during this period of time. I've been taking this time to actually record her story. She was part of the polio epidemic, so she was one of the kids in New Zealand schools who didn't go to school, didn't do any education at all for nine months, right? So, you know, it was interesting to listen to her stories and how that was for um, today's current children. I think the education system moved fairly swiftly. Um, online, setting up that, you know, education TV when we had the first lockdown. That was done at an amazing amount of speed. Trying to get devices and packs out to, um, you know, young people and children as quickly as possible. I think they did a great job. New Zealand students' achievement in STEM subjects, mm. science, maths, technology, has been declining for years now. Why do you think that is? Um, well, there's a variety of um, people's opinions, isn't there? I mean, some people will say it's around teacher training. Some people will say it's around how much we're trying to put in the curriculum. Some people say, um, you know, are we making STEM subjects sexy enough uh, for, for kids to want to study them, and what so do, on and what so forth. I think it's a combination of all things. Mm. But um, once upon a time, you know, you would walk into every New Zealand classroom and there would be a nature table sitting over in the corner. Um, I don't know if you can still do that in every classroom, and I now know that there, I know I can hear there's teachers out there saying, "Of course there is. I've got one in my classroom," and and that's great. Mm. But how is it used during the day, and is there enough time for the children to take to actually expand on what is the um, the sciences in that area? How do we turn them on? The other thing we used to do is we used to have sort of roving. Um, I don't know what they used to be called, but they were like, you know, they'd be music teachers and art teachers mm. and science teachers and those sort of people. They would come in and help um, the teachers in class um, lift that sort of interest from students. And I think we lost some of that with the Tomorrow Schools model and some of that retrenching that we did with those sort of floating experts. Do you think Tomorrow Schools has been damaging? I think there have been uh, parts of Tomorrow Schools that have been damaging. Um, I, I'm a great believer in the boards of trustees, but I also, I think that there was, um, I think that there was more in the work that Bali Khan um, and his team did that could have been and should have been adopted to bring back the balance between parental involvement, community involvement, and actually teaching and learning and what schools were, how schools were able to support their children. So what have been the damaging elements of tomorrow's schools? I think that for me, it's been the loss of trust, actually, in the profession. Um, you know, we have a highly trained teaching workforce, and since tomorrow's schools, there's been the suggestion that um, 
that others could really come into their classroom and tell them what to do. Mm -hmm. Or they should be available at all times of day, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, to interact with parents, and that parents need to go in and demand answers for their kids, right? Um, and I just think that that's the pressure that's put on our teachers has made them somewhat fearful on some levels mm -hmm. of the scrutiny that they have, the interact, you know, the interactions that they have. And that, that makes it sound like I'm sort of anti-parent, and most parents are wonderful. But I do think the profession has come under an awful lot of strain because tomorrow's schools shook the trust in those educational professionals. What do you think should be the top priority for improving education in New Zealand? Um, oh, that's really interesting. I actually think, well, OK, for me, I, I agree. I think there are some basics that we need to get back down to core basics in those early years, so in those primary school years. We've, we've packed in a lot of experiences for children because we didn't want them to miss out, but possibly what we've done is we've packed in too many trips and not enough times tables and, um, you know, uh, basic core math, core science, core literacy. Um, at the upper end of the schooling sector, I'd actually like to see more of that te whariki philosophy go up. So I'd like to see um, children's interest or young people's interest being the pivot of their education in the way that te whariki talks about it, so child-centred learning going all the way up into those um, teenage years. What do you think of the Oranga Tamariki reforms? Um, well, from what I can see, they are following the same pattern, the same operating model that I put into place when I was there, which is good. I hope that is true because the point of that operating model was to deliver on the promise of Paul Te Atatū and actually um, try and bring mātua whāngai. Mm. Um, but it was never going to happen, you know, overnight. So I can see a shift in the people delivering. Mm. Um, but I've also noticed a huge social media campaign in the last, you know, since the beginning of this year looking for families. Uh, so, that you know, the truth is still the truth. Um, that, social, that campaign will be to bring in um, a group of New Zealanders who have said we would like to be considered for looking after children who need us and they'll go into training and then some will get through that training and then what they have is the agency will have a pool of caring New Zealanders who have been given training that are ready there for an emergency should a child need to be placed. Mm. So it's still doing the job it's doing. The reforms include a proposal to scrap the Children's Commissioner role and replace it with a mm. board of three to six people. What do you think of that? Well, I mean, I remember the conversation, because I was part of the um, conversations that started this, really, the mm. Independent Children's Monitor. Um, so I, I think that the Independent Children's Monitor is needed. Mm. Um, it's supposed to go wider than just Oranga Tamariki, though. It was supposed to go into child wellbeing and how education was supporting that, what was health's responsibility there. And the reason I was passionate about it was, if you have a look at the things that bring children into Oranga Tamariki's care, most of them Oranga, Oranga Tamariki can't touch. Mm. It's either an addiction issue, which is health, it's um, you know behavioural issues or other things that education has something to do with, um, or, it has, or it's a justice or family violence issue. The bit that I find interesting that's changed is the conversation about replacing the Children's Commissioner with a panel. I don't recall having that conversation. Um, the Children's Commissioner was always to have a couple of things taken away from them to remove a conflict, um, but actually so to make them more of an independent advocate. Mm. Um, I'm not quite sure of the logic behind a panel. 
Do you think it's a bad idea? I, I think that the Children's Commissioner role should stay an independent Children's Commissioner. I think there is a role for that person. Mm. Um, and that they need to be, they need to make sure they are looking at the child and youth wellbeing mm. strategy and the scope of how this country cares for children. Um, and I'd like to see them take on corporate as much as they take on government. So I'd like to see one individual, a really brave individual in that role, yeah. After the break, a pretty extraordinary admission for a former minister. Tracy Martin admits she was relieved to be voted out of Parliament. Gilda, welcome back. Tracy Martin played a central role in the last government. As a cabinet minister, she developed a reputation as a peacemaker of sorts between Labour and New Zealand First MPs. But in the 2020 election, New Zealand First was voted out and Tracy Martin's political career came to an end. Do you miss Parliament? Um, I was talking to somebody about this the other day. Somebody asked me. Um, I'm, I'm an opinionated person. You? Yes. You'd be surprised, I know. <laughs> anyway, um, I have learnt recently, though, so you don't see anything of me on social media, that I don't need to give my opinion to everybody. So that is, I am growing. But the bit I miss is going, being able to go down to the house and actually I had my five minutes and this is what I think in my five minutes. And then I had to sit down and I had to do it politely. You know, no hypocrisy, no liar, no you, no this, all those rules. Um, and then listen to somebody else's opinion. That, that bit I miss, because you don't get a chance to do that very often. You don't have that opportunity? No, well, I had a friend over not so long ago, and um, we were talking about cycle lanes, and so I did have an opinion there. And so we had about an hour. That was a really good interaction on our opinions. But, um, and we got up and left, and that's still a friend. Dare I ask what you think of cycle lanes? I don't have. I think we need to get cycle lanes. We are moving down that protection for cyclists mm. to make sure that they can go on the roads. I just have a thing about it. All the money coming from the land transport fund. Mm. Seriously though, do you feel like there is not enough space for people to share opinions? I worry that. I worry that there is, um, and it, it's mostly social media, I suppose. I worry that it's hard to express in a view, or that we haven't taught our young people that it's okay for somebody to express a view that is different from yours. You don't have to change yours and they don't have to change theirs. Um, the world won't end if you both walk away from that conversation maintaining your positions, right? It's how to have that dialogue respectfully. Mm. Um, and I really worry that we're getting to the stage where um, the, the chilling effect of the threat of being cancelled or, or the aggression that's coming out, do you know? Um, that it's affecting people's ability to just talk to each other. It's interesting. You think, like, cancel culture is a phenomenon, even in the New Zealand context? Yeah, I do, from the perspective that... Um, in conversations that I'd had with a couple of young people in my office, mm. private secretaries in my office, around, um, you know, it was, it's, it's a hot topic. It's a hot topic for certain people for certain ways, and that was around the transgender um, community. And these young people sort of said, we really would like to talk about this. We'd really like to understand it. Because they didn't really understand mm. what, you know, the perspectives. But they were so worried about saying the wrong thing or asking the question wrongly and then that somehow that would tar them with a brush, that they that they it would impact on them negatively, that they therefore didn't enter they didn't enter into that 
that conversation. And it's only through those conversations, respectfully, that mm. we get to learn more. And sometimes when you learn more, you change your mind. Right? Mm. Speaking of differences of opinion, how do you reflect on the success or otherwise of the coalition? Um, I think the coalition did really, really well. There were lots of things that were put into place that, I mean, we delivered on lots and lots of things. And the relationships in Cabinet and most of the time during the coalition period um, were collegial and really respectful and worked really well. Everybody knew it was going to be tricky when you get towards an election. Um, and I guess, you know, for me, I said, you know, right at the, in the first year, let's figure out the bits that we're not going to be able to deliver, people, because we need to make sure that those who are voting for us know that we're not going to be able to deliver that. And it's okay. Mm. We're not going to be able to deliver it because this is something that the Greens won't support. Or we're not going to be able to deliver it because this is something New Zealand mm. First won't support. Mm. People got it. It'll be fine, right? Anyway, my advice wasn't taken, but there you go. Um, it became really... COVID, again, affected to the coalition because um, everybody had to sort of go home, stay home, and you had a very small group of people inside the Beehive who had to make relatively instantaneous decisions. That made other people feel a bit like they were being told what was happening, not actually for their input into those decisions. So it, it started to affect relationships. So it was, it was fairly tense towards the end of that coalition. Was that Labour... MPs making those decisions. Well, I mean, basically, it was. If you remember, um, <clears throat> you know, the the prime minister said that it would be her and Grant would would be she, he would be in her bubble, yeah. right? And it wasn't that they were withholding any information. It wasn't that you know it was none of that hmm. going on. It was that they got the information first and then they disseminated it. And they did, they would disseminate it. I think it quite rightly with a recommendation that came from you know Ashley. Hmm. So. But for some, it started to feel like, well, hang on a minute, I'm, the, I'm secondary now to getting this information and you've already made a decision. Um, that wasn't necessarily a reality. It was just now suddenly it's distant and we're on... It, it's never great having these conversations when you're on, you know, um, Teams or Zoom or whatever mm. it was, you know. When you say for some, mm. are you talking about Winston Peters? Um, he's not the only person I'm talking about. Um, but I think, for me, just for me, mm. as I've thought about the, the coalition and the and the in hindsight, I think we made a mistake by actually suggesting that Winston went up into the far north. Um, he had a house in Wellington. I think we would have been smarter to um, see if his family would come down and be in the house in Wellington and actually have him there, close to the Beehive, because the the Prime Minister on a number of occasions articulated that she really, really. Um, wanted his input. So, yeah, I think it just, you know, hindsight's a wonderful thing. Mm. Do you think you made the right decision to go with Labour? Yeah, absolutely. Mm. No, no, absolutely. But then somebody, people will all tell you I was probably more <laughs> Labour than anyway. So, um, but, you know, I, I was in those coalition conversations. It was all about policy and uh, we had far more in common with, with them than we did with the National Party at the time. Mm. So, mm. You left New Zealand first at the start of last year, and I think at the time you said you felt like the party had moved away from its roots. It needed to get back to its mm. roots. Is it doing that? Um, to be frank, I don't know, because I, I have literally almost no interaction at all uh, with New Zealand first. Um, 
So I, I don't have the faintest idea, but for me, it no longer, it just wasn't the party that I had um, sort of stood for in 2008 and then brought back in 2011. Why was that? What changed? Um, just the way that there were just policy differences. There was a different influence, uh, probably slight, and again, nobody will be surprised by this, probably more to the right than I was. Mm. Um, think, you know, policy places that, came, that were coming out of caucus, and they were majority caucus decisions, so you stand by them, but they no longer represented or made me feel comfortable. So, mm. it, you know... It, on, in one way, it was lucky for me that New Zealand never first got, didn't get back because I was finding myself in a really tricky spot um, that if, they, if we had got back into Parliament, I'm not sure that the direction that they were taking with decisions I could have maintained. What would you have done? Well, that's the, that's the bit why it's a relief, isn't it? Because it's, it's not a small thing to get elected to Parliament. Mm. It's not something one should take lightly. Um, or think, oh, well, it's not going my way, so I'm going to walk mm. off, right? Um, and particularly if you're in government, it's, there's a whole country you're supposed to put aside yourself for, right? Mm. Um, but I'm, it would have placed me in a really difficult place. I think I, would have, I was considering that I, might, I actually can't stand up for this anymore. So um, I would have had to have had a really strong conversation with those people that I listened to about how do I how do I remove myself from this space? Would removing yourself have meant? Oh, I would have quit. Yeah, I would have had to quit if I couldn't. If I if I didn't feel that I could shift the conversations inside caucus to a place where I felt comfortable with them, then you know you can't just stay. You can't cross the floor and go and sit somewhere else. That's nobody elected me there. They elected New Zealand First there, and I just happened to be on that ticket. So it's not a choice of walking across the floor. I mean, you said it yourself that, that people have, you know, accused you of being close to Labour in the past. W was there any part of you that wondered if you might have been better suited in that party? Um, with the party that we were in coalition with, yes. With the party that was um, Labour once upon a time when I suddenly, when I began being interested in New Zealand first, no. So Labour has basically moved to where my belief structure is from what was the sort of neoliberal movement, that is, which is why I went and joined or became part of New Zealand First. So was there a sense of relief, perhaps, yeah. that you weren't re-elected? Yeah. Yeah, there was. For me, there was a mm. sense of relief. Yeah. Do you ever talk to Winston? Um, well, he rang my mum on Christmas Eve, which is, you know, he's lovely like that, and he and, he and my mum get on really, really well. Um, and poor thing, my mum gave me the phone, so he had to speak to me. But, it, you know, he was nice as he yeah. always is, you know. So, yeah, so that's... And every now and then I text him on something, um, you know, something that, that I feel that he should be aware of. But And he always texts back, so, yeah. I know 18 months a long time, but do you think he stands a chance of being re-elected? Anyway, uh, we're really talking about New Zealand first, but I suppose I understand what I you're know, saying. I know, I know. We he, always he say this. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, he is the face of yeah. New Zealand first, so what can do? Um, I don't think so, but that's just me. And um, like I mentioned to you earlier, so Ron, Mark and I were having dinner um, the other night with Mark Patterson and so on and so forth, and we have a bet on it. And Ron believes that they will be, they'll, they'll fly in over the 5%, and I don't think so. I think New Zealand has changed. So, you know, we've got some money on it, and we'll see. How much money? 
It's a hundred bucks on it, actually. Oh, it's good cash. I know. Oh, yeah. yeah. Steak dinner? Well, probably a good bottle of Pinot Noir as well. <laughs> mm. um, you are on every board in the country. You have all of these different governance roles and responsibilities at the moment. But I know that one of your priorities in getting outside of Parliament was to try and enjoy mm. a little bit more spare time. Can you tell us about the romance novel? Yes, well, okay. So, the romance novel, I did start the romance novel. Um, it's, for those who don't know, it's been a picture in my head for a long, long time, mm. right? Um, and it's a very New Zealand story. But what I've figured out is, and this comes out of mostly my broadcasting work, firstly, if I turn it into a straight to Netflix or Apple TV or Dis Discovery or Disney or whatever, mm. then I don't have to write all the, as much dialogue and I don't have to know all of the, you know, the sort of the little nitty gritty about different cultural events, which because it is a New Zealand novel or a New Zealand story. So I'm turning it into a screenplay for straight to, um, you know, digital, online, whatever. Have you always wanted to write romance? No, but I've had this story in my head for ages. Um, and I have a series of books that I want to write that I told Jacinda and Megan Woods about um, based on my female ancestors. Mm. So because what I found was my husband and I, we didn't know this, but both we both have ancestors from the 1800s buried in the Lawrence Cemetery. Mm. So I wanted to trace the female ancestors from there up in a circle from then to now mm. where these two families have gone from living next door to each other there mm. and now they're... Married. So that's another thing I'm going to do some stage in my future. Can you tell us the protagonist's names? No, I haven't got the faintest idea <gasps> at the moment. What? No, no, I know. Isn't I that know. the key to a romance novel? Well, I've been busy. <laughs> give, it, give, it, give me a scale. Like, how Mills and Booney are we sort of talking no, about? No, no. And I'm not being facetious because I no, know no, that it's... No, no, I understand. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, because I tell you, that's a genre that sells. I mean, you that's know, it. real money. Yeah. Um, so... It's sort of, it's not, uh, you know, it's not sort of Mills and Boone all over there, but there is that normal meet, instant attraction, have a fight, hate each other, an event, they get back together, right? That's the basic mm. recipe. So, so it's there, but it's got a much more sort of nuanced flavour to it, uh, I think. Wouldn't expect anything less than nuanced. No, 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 that's right. Wouldn't be powerful <laughs> at all. That's Tracy Martin. I must say, we had a lovely afternoon. Komutu, that is Q&A for this week from the Q&A team. Thanks for watching, and nā mihi ki a koutou i ngā karere. Thanks for your feedback. Hey tērā wiki, we'll see you next Sunday at 9am. Q&A is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air.